it's kind of like we're being called to prove what's happening and left with the task of reimagining the world. And it's a lot. There's a lot to do. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's collaborative series with the Institute of Race Relations journal Race and Class. In this collaborative series, we have been speaking to scholars and contributors of the recent special issue, Race, Mental Health and State Violence. For episode two today, we are really excited to be joined by Eddie Bruce-Jones, who is head of department at Burt Becklaw and writes on race, migration, colonialism, state racism, Guys, you might be able to tell that I'm super nervous talking to Eddie because Eddie was one of the first people, along with Yasmin Ryan, who basically taught me how to be a critical scholar. I was the first person that taught me about intersectionality and how to talk about race and class in a critical way when I was doing my master's. So I'm having a big fangirl moment, but equally, I need to control my nerves. So Eddie, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. It's so great to see what you're doing now. And thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah. This is episode two of this series. Tiso and I have obviously read the special issue and it is really hard hitting, emotional, but also so powerful. And I guess it would be really good for our listeners to hear about how the special issue came about and sort of the core themes that you were looking to cover. Sure. The Angiolini review, which I'll talk about later, I'm sure, was a uh, review on deaths in custody and deaths after policing counters that was published in 2017. And around the same time it was published, a colleague and I, so Manish Bhatia, who co-edited the special issue, uh, we were we were talking about the lack of visibility of the intersection of race and mental health when thinking about how the state encounters you, us. Um, So thinking about racism through the lens of other vulnerabilities and vice versa, thinking of those mental health vulnerabilities through the lens of racism became clear to us that we wanted to provide a space to have a discussion among academics, but also healthcare service providers, policy, you know, policy thinkers, uh, campaigners, and bereaved families about what that intersection would be able to help us explore. Like, so how focusing on race and mental health in policing context would be, it would be beneficial to have that kind of discussion across these different disciplines and sectors. So we organized a symposium for the following year at Birkbeck that would bring together these different parts of our world to have this discussion. And it was pretty big. I mean, about 200, uh, 220 People came along. Uh, we had probably 15 presenters, all just giving their perspectives from their either their lines of work, their campaigns, or their academic research. And it was it was so, 
I think it was so energizing for a lot of us there to hear these different perspectives and also for people to realize that they're not alone in their siloed sector in thinking about how these issues come together. But it was also a time where families and support organizations like Inquest at the symposium kind of gave their updated view on this report because the review was so broad and so important, but to that date, you know, a year later, the recommendations hadn't been followed through on and they still haven't. So it was it was kind of a point of reflection, this symposium. And then the special issue brought together some pieces from the symposium and then a few other pieces that weren't at the symposium, but were really, really insightful and useful in that context and just brought them together into this volume so that people could see some of the variety of things that are being written about and and thought about on this issue. So we wanted to choose articles and interventions that were quite different from one another to give a range of different issues that come out of that intersection. So it's not only about police encounters on the street. It's also about the hostile environment. It's also about prevent, you know, counterterrorism. It's about a lot of things that further entrench the vulnerabilities of of communities that are facing either mental health crises or are racialized communities or both. That focus on mental health really tries to sort of recapture the human within some of these incidences or these state violences. And that's what I feel like is often so like it's just missing within our analysis. Well, not necessarily within all our analysis of this, but how the state presents and how sometimes NGOs presents what has happened. So thinking about prevent, thinking about death in custody, thinking about tagging, all these things. And it's like you're retrieving what these things have actually done to human beings and how that has obviously been impacted or been a consequence of mental health. I think it's so powerful and it makes for such an emotional, emotive read, but also a radical read. And it makes me think of like, like Paul Gilroy, Christina Sharp, like reclaiming that Mm. category of the human and saying like, this is what the state does to us. This is what it does to communities is how it marginalises for a long time, black people don't have control of their bodies. But now, this is in the province of the mind. The mind, you know. Like, initially, like we're all, we're all aware of the tropes around black men and, and their physicality and their bodies. But this time, you're going into my mind. So prevent the way we, with the way we think, the way we actually are. We don't even have that space to have mental illness. That's mad. You can't even have the space to be depressed. Mm. Because that could possibly lead to your death. It shows you this embodiment of black people in the West. Guiding phrase of the Enlightenment, I think, therefore I am. I cannot even think. If I cannot even think, I, therefore I don't even qualify in your register to be a person. And mm. that, to me, is what came out when I read that volume. I don't even qualify under the basic premise of the Enlightenment. I think, therefore I am. Because if I think, possibly, I could be done for not thinking correctly or done for being depressed or whatever it will be. Absolutely. At the symposium, one of our speakers who didn't, um, we didn't collect the work in the special issue because of the, while it's a broad special issue, we kept the framing around state violence in kind of a, with some sort of policy implication coming out of a lot of the, the, the writings. But it was um, Lamar Jarrell Bruce, who's this amazing scholar in the, in the US and who 
is writing about blackness and madness and being critical of those of, of the term madness, but also reclaiming some of what black epistemologies have given us that are outside of the box, but then are labeled mad for political reasons or whatever. And one of the things that he mentioned, he was like, well, don't forget during slavery days, if you would run away from the plantation, that was a diagnosable mental illness because obviously you would want to stay somewhere where you're being protected because you can't care for yourself. So that was the idea that if you run away, you must have this mental illness. The way that we think about, about care and about mental condition and about diversity, so neurodiversity and all of those things, I mean, it's already racialized in, in so many ways. And then there are other political uses for how these terms are, are used and weaponized um, and how there's care that's withheld or just um, how people are rooted into the criminal justice system rather than um, having care for, provided for them. So, I mean, it's a, it's such a, an issue that's woven in with so many parts of our our lived environment. Eddie, wanted to talk a little bit about your writing reflections on the findings and recommendations of the official review of practices and processes relating to and following police-related deaths in the UK. And this review is called the Angelini Review. And there's about over 100 recommendations. What could prevent police engaging in practices that have left led to the deaths of people within their care? reading through your review like it's not like we're reading through the aspects of policing that we weren't aware of and that we don't know the way you write it was just so powerful because it's got that empathy it's got that radicalism but it's also got the fact woven in throughout and I think it's such a skill to be able to do that and I think it's why it reads as such an emotional review as well because it's like your review of the Angelina review is reads as such common sense as to why is this not happening or why does this maintain? And the only thing that I can think of is it maintains on purpose or that it stays there because people don't want things to change or they don't care about these deaths. The last policeman to be prosecuted for a death, it was like over 30 years ago. It's a long time ago. When you start thinking in that, you start thinking, well, is this willful? That's the only conclusion you can derive because probability will tell you that someone if there's X amount of cases, at least some of them should be found guilty or some kind of prosecutions come from that probability. The most shocking thing is that it's not shocking. As a, as a young black man, I'm conditioned in a way to be wary of the state. So I'm wary of the police. I'm wary of doctors. I'm wary of anyone of any official capacity. I have been conditioned to be on guard with them. It is shocking that we're not shocked. I mean, that's a good way to put it. it and it's it's sad and it's a feature of knowing that racism is structural and institutional and but having that always be called in question because all, all the time you say okay that well racism is at play in the operations of the criminal justice system generally and certainly when we think about police accountability there must be something there that structures this lack of accountability into the system but it's hard to make that case without doing something like this review does in, in policy terms, um, even though we know it's happening. So that's part of this conundrum. We, we see it, we experience it. We have, 
you know, whether it's personal or we understand the position that Black people, people experiencing mental health uh, crises are, are facing in this country, like in other countries, we see the patterns. But to get the policy traction around getting change and to shift the culture of the institutions that might resist the change, like policing institutions that want to maintain authority and legitimacy, be able to operate in the kind of range of ways that they operate and not have themselves called into question or be embarrassed by having kind of the, these racial racialized structures. I mean, there's so much resistance that it's difficult to see when and how things will change. And which is why I think, and maybe this is going a step like beyond where we are in this conversation, but I'm sure it'll come up at some point, why calls for abolition or radical transformation of policing structures are a bit, you know, they're coming a bit more into people's vocabulary because it's clear that the same issues that were being brought up by families when they organized in the late 90s to make the United Friends and Families campaign they still exist. You know, people are still getting disproportionately people in um, in communities of color are still being over-policed and treated with disproportionate force. The Dying for Justice report by the Institute of Race Relations, while it must be seven or eight years ago now, yeah, went through these statistics showing that the the inquest verdicts might show that there was either negligence or undue, like, harm or or that the cause of death was the police and then the prosecution itself won't actually hold police accountable in in criminal terms that happens over and over and over again so we see these patterns and it's it is a balance between trying to make the case that that this stuff exists so spending energy doing that and spending energy actually transforming things or maybe coming up with a way to rethink the system it's kind of like we're being called to prove what's happening and left with the task of reimagining the world. And it's a lot. That's a lot to do. That's part of the process. So we are the victims and the victims are doing the work. So hmm. the, the perpetrator has no reason to change anything because we've done everything. Hmm. We, we've been the victim. We're trying to lobby for the change. The reason why the response is so lukewarm is it because who's being policed? Mm. the white mainstream are not the ones being policed. And I think this current pandemic has kind of focused the issue of policing more because white people for the first time in some of them in their lives are being policed for the first time, being stopped, mm. being told to wear masks. Where are you going? That to them is unusual. But stop and search to me has been a part of my life since I was 11. Mm. Though that is important, having more middle-class people understand what policing is. I, I still think that there's that distinction between policing, like civil control and policing as something which leads to the disproportionate death of communities of colour. I don't know whether them being police, quote-unquote, civil <laughs> disobediences is going to lead them to understand. I don't, I don't think they'll ever understand. I don't think yeah. that, that it, that's, that's one of the problems, trying to get people to understand. And yeah. I don't think you ever understand uh, unless you direct, develop that kind of that critical gaze to see something mm -hmm. from the other person's point of view and truly try to try to understand. And I think that's always been missing in in this in these kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. I think Eddie's work does it really well. He gets across the, the human element, right? The, te the testimonies of people. Even when we speak about the recommendations of the report, Eddie, like some of the stuff that people the report was asking for was so pragmatic 
And so, for example, that there should be no means testing of financial assistance, right? One of the cases in there, the family had to contribute 21 grand to investigate their own son's death in custody. And it's the basic stuff like that. I mean, it's it's sometimes shocking to read through the report's recommendations because you would have thought that some of those things are already a part of, uh, you know, part of the system. But it's it is shocking to hear how much families have to contribute financially. They have to pay for it, basically, if they want mm. to find out why their loved one died and to push forward with, you know, investigating it and and going through the inquest and all of that. I mean, they have to put up so much money that I think Deborah Coles mentioned that there are families who had to mortgage their houses or, or really just kind of put themselves in financial predicaments to, to do it. Or, you know, some of the recommendations related to police cooperating with investigations, like the basics of a fair investigation or the transparency or not getting together to have a conversation before going to the the International Office of Police Conduct. So in other words, not getting your story straight before going to them, to go to them with what you know as an individual officer to organize a consistent story. If it's not consistent, then there's something to investigate, right? The basics seem to be so pragmatic and they, they seem to be in everyone's interest. It does require big institutions, powerful institutions to own up to needing to change and then to change. I think it happens sometimes in in some institutions, but this seems a very sensitive area of change. It would be really good for our listeners to have a little brief description of Inquest. And um, you mentioned Deborah Coles, sort of what they do, what they've been focused on, how they've been supporting the families and the communities of colour that are disproportionately affected by deaths in police custody. Yeah, that's really great. Inquest is a phenomenal organisation and they support uh, families with, with their expertise, legal advice, basically casework when a family loses one of its family members to policing death. Uh, And an inquest is a process that is mandatory if someone dies in police custody or in a policing encounter. And that's done because the, the UK considers it a part of its obligations under human rights law to secure a clear reason for for the death so that the state isn't then faced with the question of whether it let someone die. And that's Article 2 of the the Human Rights Act and also Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. So it's a mandatory process, but um, it still takes navigating. And it's more than just the process itself. Inquest uh, as an organization It's not affiliated with the process, but it's named after the process. As an organization, it's also there to help campaign on behalf of the rights of families who have lost loved ones and to expose some of the issues that underlie not only the inquest system itself, but the broader system of accountability around policing deaths. So, for example, they're now campaigning uh, legal aid for inquests and non-means-tested financial assistance um, for for families for the whole process. And they're campaigning around clarity and some challenges to how people are treated in detention during a pandemic, for example. And I'm sure you've heard uh, about the barracks in Kent that the Home Office is set up to, to detain people in immigration detention or the makeshift 
porta cabins that the home office wanted to set up near y'all's wood to house people during a pandemic, which sounds pretty inhumane. My second cousin, he died in police custody. And one of the issues was, was the inquest. From the time he died to the actual inquest was five years. Mm. Mm. The state has the ability to draw things out. And if it weren't for inquest, the organization, they were all involved in this mm. kind of thing. Like that length of time is mm. debilitating. And mm. plus you're waiting for a verdict. It could rule, uh, in the case of my, my cousin, it was unlawful killing. It doesn't necessarily lead to a prosecution. All that time you're waiting for an outcome, for justice, it, it may not come. It may not come. And so this length of time, the money, the pressures, plus the fact that you've lost a loved one, all those pressures create a level of mental instability and it kind of fractures the family. Like mm. it, it, the level of stress. So it's it's not only like, are you dealing with the state? You're trying to live your life at the same time and cope with the, mm. the loss of a loved one. And mm. it's, it's a mad situation to be. And kind of to touch upon what you just said there, Eddie, like it's the recommendations seem like common sense. It seems like we're just asking for fair representation of a judicial system, impartiality, fairness, all those things that go with, with the legal system that we're post, that's meant to be there by default. Problematic, isn't it? If you're asking for the system to behave how it, how it should be behaved, mm. like, that's odd. Yep, it is. <laughs> and I mean, things like the administrative weight of these things isn't merely administrative for the people experiencing them. So these time limits might seem on paper to be just, you know, a matter of, um, I don't know, I'm making this up, but a matter of making sure that the system it can handle cases as they come. But that just doesn't seem like a proportionate way to set up a system where it's about someone who's lost a loved one and mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out the circumstances and whether it abides with human rights law. I mean, there should be a clear time limit on, on that sort of thing. And the Angelini Review calls for a time limit on Article 2 investigations. And it seems quite, you know, it seems like quite a reasonable request considering that um, the, the stakes for the family. So those types of things, I mean, I don't know if it's a matter of political will or a matter of resources, but it seems like there should be a lot of urgency around thinking these issues through, especially when the question is whether the state was involved in the person's death. That should be answered in a timely way. But yeah, and I'm really sorry to hear about your, your second cousin. And I'm, I'm sure that ordeal was a lot for your family to carry it changes the course of, of people's lives that who are who are left behind it doesn't do anything to help or kind of nurture that relationship that we have with the state or its actor in this case it'd be the police i'm always on on guard when i'm dealing with the state mm. in whatever capacity so it be the police or people looking at for people's mental health immigration and how do you mend that relationship from their perspective is radical from for our perspective it's common sense right mm-hmm. when we suggest like things like defunding the police yeah catchphrase that people that's going around that and there's a there's a fundamental mis- misunderstanding around that until they understand that my encounter with the police can lead to my death so therefore i have a stake in trying to get this resolved so but what would you say to people by recommending defunding the police or suggesting anything that's that may change the power the police has has a detrimental effect on policing would you, how would you counter that argument? A detrimental effect in terms of making the quality of policing worse or just scaling down the police? Like, to the I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be devil's advocate. I'm trying to think. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That's a good, 
I think it's a good question. I think there are so many different ways to think about what defunding would mean. But one way is to think about taking funds away from policing and giving those funds to other social services that would help people in a different way that's not policing. So uh, in terms of who you call when certain types of things happen, if there were different numbers to call for different things, and you call a different number and people come who are mental health workers who are trained to kind of engage with someone who's in a mental health crisis and who are not law enforcement, who are not going to be carrying, you know, guns or or restraining people face down for long periods of time, like which was the case with Sean Rigg, the brother of Marcia Rigg, who was basically held down in a, in a prone position by police instead of having the mental health team be there. I mean, that is one way to think of defunding is not defunding social institutions, but defunding the police and rerouting funds to where it would be more helpful to people. There are criticisms of that as well, because mental health institutions are um, also, you know, violent places and also capable of of the type of damage that that police are capable of in, in certain ways. But then it's about, I think, thinking creatively about what care looks like, which is maybe a longer conversation. I think that the easier part of the conversation is, well, we know police aren't handling it well. So um, if there are people who do it a bit better, maybe transferring funds that way in the first instance could be a reasonable step towards a longer term goal of scaling back these violent institutions more generally from our from our lives and our contact with them. In my cousin's case, it was similar. So they, they called the police and he was acting odd. He was detained under the Mental Health Act, arrested and restrained in a similar way you just said. Mm. And so they took him to hospital restrained in handcuffs, they took him to hospital naked. He suffocated from the results of him being um, restrained. But the issue is when you spoke about the numbers, different numbers to call, when people saw him from the witness reports, you have this racialized notion of a black body. Mm. He's big, he's strong. They started talking about drugs, crack, cocaine, which was not true. And all these things of a racialized body. So if people had made those judgments before they even got onto the phone. Without really diagnosing him, those social forces that exist, those tropes that exist around black bodies or around black people, was the prison they viewed him in. And yeah. the response was in reaction to those views. He wasn't particularly big. Most people who will react badly if they're trying to be held down. Right, that, that's. I think that's just a human response, right? You try, yeah. you'll resist, especially if there's eight of them. The issue is around education, educating people. Mm. Before, before we start moving to kind of like results about defunding, because I think mm. you end up with the same results because it's how they view not, not just black people, any marginalized group. It's how they view them through those particular stereotypes and tropes, and that's how they kind of lead to that response. Mm. No, thank you for that. There's this article. Actually, there are a couple of articles she's written, but there's one. Uh, written by Camille Nelson about the Canadian context, where she talks about um, the medical gaze and the criminal gaze. She says that when it's about Black people being policed, that the the medical gaze is kind of put all the way to the side, and the criminal gaze is the one that they're viewing the person's actions through. And of course, it's it's through the lens of seeing a Black body, of understanding madness to be kind of inherent in the Black body in some way. And this is 
obviously the, the kind of social construction of what madness is. So it's a type of kind of sanism, ableism, like Vanessa Thompson calls it, but that they have access to those different lenses. And then they use those lenses for different subjects, depending on who you are. And I think that's a, it's a really clear insight into how race plays a role when people's behavior is being judged and how there's kind of almost this racialization of their actions that eradicates the possibility that they can be in, in need of care. And I've seen that in other contexts, like in the, the German context, um, where I've looked at policing deaths, and it just seems that that's kind of a story that repeats itself and repeats itself. Disproportionate use of force is justified by the police saying, oh, I felt so in danger for my life because this person was, you know, not only black or or you know muslim but acting really really aggressive and i feared for my life meanwhile they were having mental health crises um so it's you know it is the like you say i think it's it's this socially embedded racism that underlies these judgments when they're being made but it's also the structures that allow those judgments to continue to be to be made and used and justified and there not to be accountability around them. So yeah, I guess one question for us is what kind of institution or what kind of system would we want to see and how would we want care to look like? And I think those discussions, they're not even just abstract ones. Abolitionist Futures is an organization like looking at abolition and trying to figure out what a world with less or no policing would look like and how we would, how we would structure that. I think that's a really worthy question to, to ask ourselves even now in the early stages of our kind of thinking. We've obviously seen in the last sort of year we've had COVID-19, global pandemic, we also had the renewed Black Lives Matter global movement which has been absolutely brilliant but also was following the killing murder of George Floyd and one of the things that we've kind of touched on a little bit on the show over the past few years but also more recently is our sort of lack of understanding or the lack of an inclusive political history that understands how these things or how these issues have manifested in Britain for decades. Is it possible that we need to start reclaiming some of the histories or some of the things that have happened very locally in Britain that could help make a larger, more inclusive movement to imagine an um, abolitionist future where policing is defunded. And I'm thinking here about that you mentioned um, in the article and in the special issues, their names come up throughout. So thinking about Joy Gardner, thinking about Sean Rigg, thinking about Sheku Bayou, how we try and localise some of these issues or some of these violences and some of these deaths for people to have a true recognition of what has been happening within Britain for a long, long time. Stephen Lawrence has captured with public imagination, which is important, like we need that, but we also need more names. Would more names help? What happened with George Floyd? Why do we not have similar public reactions even in the context of Britain here, because we have got so many examples. No, I think no, I think it's a it's a good question. It's one that's come up in in various contexts that I've been in, you know, over the past year, where it comes down to sometimes comparing the U.S. context with other contexts. Because I think when people approach the question, at least when I've been asked 
questions about how Black Lives Matter has traveled or how the, the um, protests have been in solidarity with George Floyd. I always remind my interlocutor that it's that there's a huge stage for for what's happened in, in the U.S., but there's been so much happening in other places and the local the local stories have been big in kind of a national way in certain times like when Sean Riggs even a couple of years ago when the police case came back up or Leon Briggs or you know Joy Gardner people know these names and it might be because there has been some work done kind of public work done to make these names uh visible in the UK context I think there is though there's there's not been an embedding of these stories, I think maybe in a more mainstream, possibly. It might be that I think that people know these names because I'm surrounded by people who know the names and the stories and know this reality. There is something about the fact that a lot of, you know, a lot of attention has been paid to things that have happened and have been captured on social media or captured on video. And I think some people feel, you know, feel like it's a lot, it's overload to see these things happening. The challenge and the opportunity is to make sure that we're connecting these stories in some way and not just showing solidarity for other stories, but having, making the connection. So when I saw, I went to um, one of the protests here at the American Embassy uh, last summer, there were, you know, there are posters that had, George Floyd on them next to posters that, that, you know, that had Sarah Reed on them. Uh, and I think that's important. And I think it's important to see them as part of a connected, um, connected set of circumstances that have, they're not identical in, in different places, but there's a connected conversation about policing and about race. But to your question, should we be kind of, making sure the names, the list of names and the stories are as, is as complete as possible and as known as possible. I think, yeah, I think that's as a strategy of publicly educating people about the reality of these institutions. I think, yes, it's it seems ethically the right thing to do, but also as a strategy for social change, it's probably effective because of course, not everyone's going to know all the names, but as much of these people's stories and their lives that we can get out there. And, you know, this is work that's been done by families of bereaved, you know, bereaved families for, for many decades to campaign around the in, injustice of their of their death and also to give some idea of who they were is a really important tool for especially for young people who are growing up and then see this pattern that's been demonstrated and um, and then just have to reconcile that with their political beliefs about the efficacy of the current institutions and to locate where they need to be changed. Um, which is why when you see the whole list of deaths, I think the Dying for Justice report by the Institute of Racial Relations was a good attempt to put these deaths into context. Um, and to show the numbers, kind of show the, the the vastness of it. When you see that next to the Angiolini review, which has all these pragmatic recommendations for how to make things a, a few steps better, you wonder, it's like, well, why isn't this being done? Because these are relative to the big problem. 
these are pretty simple steps. Even if there are a lot of them, they're quite simple. So do some of them, right? And it just seems like hands are being thrown in the air and there's not being much done on the actual recommendations. America's got a mad history of like public death of black people. That's that's mm. embedded in the history of, of the United States. When it crossed over to the UK context, the first reaction people say to me is, well, black men are not being killed in the street here. Mm. And they try to draw that equivalence. And what happens is that's the same narrative that happens with Black History Month. The US narrative dominates the UK one. Mm. And those local stories, they get not swept under the carpet, but in a very uniquely British way, they become mm. minimised. And I don't mm. know how the British people do it, but they minimise this kind of thing. And we're racist, but we're not as bad as the United States. Mm. Therefore, you should be okay. And this is yeah. the kind of narrative that get, that kind of gets put across. And one of the problems that we have, trying to get people to understand the nature of the state, for most people, it's an abstract concept because they don't come into contact with it. Mm. So it's hard for them. So when we're trying to create solidarities and trying to say this is state tyranny for us, they don't understand state tyranny. They understand the state in abstract, in the concept, but they do not un- understand it in a practical way, in a way that marginalised people do. So yeah. it's trying to get people trying to balance those things all together. And it, it's a difficult kind of task trying to get these this right balancing act. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and I hear that in the UK and I hear that in Germany when I go to the continent. It's, you know, race is over there. Race isn't here. We don't have a race problem. There might be some disparities, but it's nothing like the U.S. And that's why they have these big protests. And that's why, you know, it happens all the time in the U.S. That's so complicated, but to have that be the response also says a lot about where that's coming from. It's coming from a place of wanting to deflect the problem, not to own up to the problem, to minimize it, and to minimize it and be speaking to someone whose experience is otherwise is a really strange thing to do. I mean, it's really trying to protect yourself at all costs and not give the person, you know, the um, the solidarity or support with something that can be evidence. I mean, we have the statistics about racial disparities in the criminal justice system in the UK by some counts being higher than in the US even. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a very strange move, but I see it happening all the time. And it's a way of maintaining the exceptionalism of, uh, of European countries as being kind of having a different history. So we have different things, but not really racism. We might have something else. Uh, We had colonialism. So we have some sort of uh, some other constellation of oppression here. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a farce. It's, It's really a way to not see the problem, to unsee it. Eddie, that was an absolutely amazing discussion. Um, So much food for thought, so much information, so much for people to carry on reading about. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for putting together this special issue. It's absolutely brilliant. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm really happy to have uh, had this conversation with you. It's been so long. and And yeah, the, the special issue was a long time in the making, but I'm glad the Institute of Race Relations has made it available for a, a one-off purchase instead of having to use the you know university libraries to get race in class. So thanks for reading it. Thank you so much, listeners, for supporting us. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, 
please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 